So as Tim read for us Psalm 1, and as I mentioned a minute ago, tonight we're beginning this new series. We're calling it the Songs of Summer. And we're, we're going to spend a few weeks here in the Psalms for two reasons, really. One is a very practical reason, and it's that we're in the middle of the summer, and a lot of people are in and out on vacations and doing other things, which is completely fine. And uh, it's helpful to go through a sermon series, particularly in the summer, that each sermon is relatively self-contained. Um, so if you miss a couple of weeks and then come back, uh, you're not going to pick up in the middle of an argument like, say, Galatians or Ephesians would enable you to, but rather you're going to hear a psalm. And so that's one reason. The other reason, however, is more important. The reason we're spending some time in the psalms at this stage in our life together as a people of God here at Christ Church is because the psalms lay before us um, the full range and depth of humanity's spiritual and emotional life. Um, they lay before us fully what it means to live life seeking God's face and yet also struggling, struggling with our sin. And so no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what's happened in your life this week, the Psalms are relevant for you. The Psalms are meaningful to you. The Psalms speak deeply into your experience because God knows the depths of our hearts. And so as we examine a few Psalms in the next few weeks together, we'll see how various they are, both on an emotional level and also in the way they speak to us spiritually. So that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. So to begin, let me tell you a story. Um, one of the struggles that I've often had in my life is that I hate asking for directions. That's something that's common, I know, for many men. It's common for me. And before the days of GPS, before the days of iPhones, it was a big issue with me. And when I was first going to Philadelphia, where I went to seminary, I was, lived in Texas my whole life, and then I traveled across the country to go to Philadelphia. I was 22 years old, and I was driving across the country, and I had driven for three days in a little Honda Civic with a U-Haul trailer attached to the back of my tiny Honda Civic. The fastest I could go was about 50 miles an hour through the Allegheny Mountains, up and down, up and down. It was it was a sanctifying process for me. We'll put it that way. And I got into Philadelphia or into Pennsylvania. I was heading east on the Pennsylvania Turnpike on I-76, and I was getting ready to enter into Metro Philadelphia. I didn't have a map. I didn't have, obviously, in those days, an iPhone or an iPad or even GPS in my car. Those things weren't standard then. I had just looked at the directions that morning, and I thought I would be good to go. But I didn't realize that in Philadelphia, the roads are not as wide as they are in Texas. And in Philadelphia, a lot of the signs just, they're just not there. People just think you know what road you're on. And so I'm traveling in on a major highway, and I think I know the exit. And I think, maybe that was the exit. Well, no, I think this is the exit. No, I'm not sure. So I stay on the highway, and I go through the western suburbs of Philadelphia. All of a sudden, I'm in Center City, and I think, this, this is kind of weird. I don't remember thinking I was going to travel through the central part of Philadelphia. And before I know it, I'm on the Ben Franklin Bridge, which is a one-way bridge crossing a river into New Jersey. And sooner or later, really sooner rather than later, I'm in the middle of West New Jersey wondering how in the world did I get off track. This definitely isn't right. The process of turning around and eventually making it to the house I was going to live in was a bit longer than I had anticipated. That was one of many instances in my life where I've remembered the importance of knowing the way that you're supposed to be going before you start the trip. Now, the Psalms are, in many ways, a long journey. And Psalm 1 is the gateway. 
It's the entry path to the journey of the Psalms. If you were just to, and probably most of you have done this if you've been Christians for some time, if you are just to sort of randomly open your Bible to the Psalms and read just a given Psalm on a given day, completely at random, sometimes that's going to frustrate you. Sometimes that's going to confuse you. Sometimes it might even make you think, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? And the reason is because the Psalms are very, very different. Some Psalms are are very, very specific cries for God to be just and wrathful even in a particular situation. Some psalms are prayers of confession. Some psalms are coronation ceremonies for kings. Some psalms are ancient hymns of the Jewish people that were sung on pilgrimages. You never know really what you're going to get. And so as you study the psalms, you have to have, to some degree, a road map of where you're going and what the psalms really are all about. Psalm 1 was placed at the beginning of this biblical songbook, the Psalter, just for that purpose. Psalm 1 serves for us as an introduction, as the gateway to the entire book. And Psalm 1, as we look at it together tonight, lays out for us very clearly two paths, two ways to live. It talks about the blessed way, the way of righteousness. And it talks about the way of folly, the way of the wicked. And it calls us to deeply embed into our hearts through the gospel the way of righteousness, the way of wisdom, the path that will lead us further and further into life with God through Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this psalm together tonight, I want to show you the very stark and very evident contrast in three different ways, three different parts, three different movements through this psalm. So the psalm tells us that there are two ways to live, and there's three ways in which we see that here. We see first two delights, then we see two images, and then finally we see two ends. Two delights, two images, two ends, okay? And the main idea that I think is communicated for us in Psalm 1 is simply this, the way of righteousness, the path that we are called to walk comes through loving God's word. The way of righteousness comes through loving God's word. Okay, three points. First, the way of, or excuse me, two delights. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist immediately here in beautiful poetic language lays out for us two delights. He says, first, blessed is the man, happy is the man who walks not, who doesn't do the following. Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now those three images speak of a wholehearted a wholehearted commitment to the ways of the world. When the psalmist says there that we are to, the, some people walk in the counsel of the wicked, he means that their minds are affected by the ways of wickedness. When he says that they stand in the way of sinners, he means that they, their behavior, their actual actions are characterized by sin. When he says that they sit in the seat of scoffers, he, he's implying that they belong. They find a home in the ways of the world. There's one very, very clear path laid out for us there, presented in a negative light immediately. Blessed is the man who does not do these things, walk with the wicked, stand with the sinners, sit with the scoffers. Secondly, verse 2, the contrast comes. But the man is blessed who, what? 
delights. Who delights in the law of the Lord? And then the second line there is like an exclamation or a, an underlining or an italicization of the first line. What does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? It means to meditate on it. To meditate on it day and night. You see, there's two delights presented for us here. There's delighting in the ways of the world, walking in the counsel of the wicked, sitting with the scoffers, standing with the sinners. And then there is meditating upon and delighting in God's law. Now, that word there, law, is the Hebrew word Torah, which is probably a familiar word with you. It primarily refers to the law of God as in the first five books of the Bible, but it's often used in the Bible to refer to all of Scripture. And that's clear, certainly what it's referring to here. It's referring to, to the Bible as a whole as it, as it exists. We are to delight in God's word, to delight in Scripture and then he says that to delight in Scripture means we meditate upon this law, on God's Word, day and night. That word there, meditate, is used elsewhere in the Bible for, for a person who, who mutters to himself or to herself. Have you ever gotten like a letter, maybe from a significant... Remember when notes, like when I was in like high school, we still passed notes. I guess now you pass texts something like that. But you get a, a note or a letter from a significant other, from your bride or from your husband or from someone that you really like. And, and it's a, a beautiful letter and they're telling you about how much they admire you and things they like about you. And you, you look at the letter and you just, you want to read it again and again and again. You know, you might even, I guess, save it on your hard drive now or put it in your back pocket and pull it out and reread it and reread it. Or or how many of you, I know some of you do this, I do this all the time, if, you're, if there's a movie that you really, really love, and you've seen the movie like a hundred times, and then you gather to watch it with your family, or with some friends, and because you've seen it so many times, you know every single line, and you annoy everybody else watching the movie by quoting the movie, like, by the way, don't do that. Marianne always gets mad, because I do that all the time, with famous Oscar-winning movies, like Dumb and Dumber and Tommy Boy, you know, great, great movies that I can recite word for word. That's, that's exactly what the word means there when it says meditate on. You, you run over it again and again and again in your head. Now, the word is telling us here, the Bible is saying to us very clearly that to delight in God's word means that we spend time, we're preoccupied with it. It's going through our heads constantly. We savor it. We love it. We think about it like we think about and savor and love a love letter written by our spouse or a movie that we've seen a million times. It's to, to delight in something. That's one of the ways as opposed to the way of delighting in the ways of the wicked. Now, a couple of points here to apply at the very beginning. First, think about this. Um, notice that the psalmist doesn't say the person who is blessed is the person who comprehends or understands the law of the Lord. That is necessary, of course, but the psalmist says that the person is blessed who delights, who savors deeply God's word. And I think we can take something very valuable from that for us, and it's this. You merely understanding and comprehending the principles, the teachings, and the stories of Scripture are not enough. What the Bible calls us to, if we're to walk the way that Jesus would have us walk, is to have the stories and the principles and the instructions of the Scriptures 
change and infiltrate not just our heads, but also our hearts. And by the way, that's a big deal to us here at Christ Church. We, we believe that, uh, well, one theologian named John Frame has written a lot about this. He's one of my favorite living theologians. And basically he says that the old distinction between exposition of a biblical text and application of a biblical text is, is in many ways illegitimate. And what he's getting at is that you don't really understand a text until it's being applied practically in your life. You don't really know the Bible unless you are living out the Bible. You can't claim to be changed by the, God, the Word of God if it's only affecting you in the head and it hasn't yet fully touched your heart. Uh, really, application and exhortation are, are different perspectives of the same thing. To know and to understand God's word implies to love and to apply God's word. And so that's what we're trying to do here, by the way, in our preaching and teaching ministry. My goal for our church, our goal as a church is not just to comprehend intellectually the things that the scripture teaches, although that is obviously necessary and important. Our goal, however, is to, to truly delight and know the Word of God. And that means to be affected by it both in the head and in the heart. It means to not only be able to give the argument, but to apply it to our hearts in day-to-day -day situations. That's what it means to delight in God's Word. Second thing here that I think is really, really important for us to think about for just a moment. Delight is what drives you. Notice here that the difference between the two paths, the two ways to live, the way of wickedness and the way of blessedness, is a difference of what the person is delighting in. Delight is what is ultimately going to allow you and enable you to make the decisions you make. Fundamentally, you don't ever do anything that you don't want to do. Now, I know we're very complex creatures, and sometimes we'll do something that we don't want to do because we know that if we don't do this thing later on, something that we really don't want to happen is going to happen. We desire to do this undesirable thing more than we desire the very, very undesirable consequences of not doing this thing. And so we think through these things, but the bottom line is we are driven in our behavior and in our actions by what we want and desire. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century theologian that wrote magnificently and fully and very complicatedly as well about this idea. He has a book called The Freedom of the Will where he basically says that our wills, the things we do, are constrained or governed by what we want, by our natures or by our desires, by our affections. And he compares it at one point to a bridle in a horse's mouth. The bridle is controlling which direction the horse is going to go. The horse would be our will, our actions, our behavior. The bridle, the thing that's controlling it, is our desiring. And so the Bible is very clear that in order to experience change, if you want to grow as a believer in Jesus, if you want to experience renewal in your life, then the heart of your desires is what has to be struck by God's Holy Spirit through the gospel. Desire is what drives you. The reason that you sinned this week is because fundamentally that's what you wanted to do the most.
And the reason that you loved and glorified God this week in whatever ways you did that is because fundamentally, through the Holy Spirit's regenerating your heart, you have a true desire to love and glorify God. The reason you do everything you do is because that's what you want to do. Delight is the key. You know, it's very evident all over the Bible, especially in uh, Genesis chapter 3, in the fall, when the devil comes to Adam and comes to Eve in the form of a serpent. Look at what, well, let me just read it. What he says, he doesn't just say to Eve, take this apple and eat. He appeals to her desire. Genesis 3 verse 6 makes it very clear. Let me get there, sorry. Um, Eve looks at the fruit and the serpent says, basically, you'll be like God if you eat this. And then verse 6 tells us, the narrator says, when the woman saw that the tree, listen, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was what? A delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, then she took of its fruit and ate. Satan went for her desires. Satan went for what she wanted, and he said to her fundamentally, basically, you want to be like God. Taking this fruit is what's going to cause that to happen. He, he appealed to her desire. That's exactly what the psalm is getting at here. It's saying that the two ways to live are entailed majorly by the two delights, the two desires of our hearts, either the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. Secondly, there are two images that don't just illustrate this point, but fun further the point and make the point even clearer. Look at what the psalmist says there in verse 3. And by the way, this is another reason I love the poetry of the Bible. He doesn't say here, delighting in God's law is good because you will be stable. Although that's true. He says, the one who delights in the word is like a tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does it prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Can you think of two more contrary images? The one who delights in God's law, the one who walks upon the path of the righteous is, the psalmist says, like a tree. Think about, you know, a huge South Texas oak tree right along the banks of the San Antonio River that you could set up a swing on and swing into the river and the tree's not going to budge. A tree is a tree is stable. A tree is rooted. A tree has some grounding to it. A tree is not going to be swayed to the left or to the right by the wind. And also a tree is fruitful, the psalm says. A tree produces. A tree is going to to, as it were, get things done for God. But chaff, chaff is the exact opposite. Chaff is easily driven away by the smallest little breeze. Rather than being grounded and rooted, chaff is, is vapid. Chaff is, is something that is functionally useless. And rather than being fruitful and productive, chaff is inedible and functionally worthless again. You know, I was mowing the lawn this week and in the suburbs, in the suburbs of San Antonio, like Saturday morning is like lawn mowing convention. And uh, we're out there mowing my lawn, and my neighbor's out there mowing his lawn. And my neighbor came over to me and said, you know, I, I was the first guy to start mowing my lawn. It was like 9 in the morning. And my neighbor came up to me and said, I, 
I was waiting to hear the guy that was going to start mowing the lawn the day after July the 4th. So you're the biggest jerk on the block, is what he told me, because you started the lawnmower and woke everybody else up. I was like, well, sorry. my kids have been up for like five hours. So um, anyway, I was mowing the lawn, and uh, you mow the lawn, you edge, and you know, you've got some grass, some chaff, so to speak, in the driveway, and I, that drives me crazy. So I get out my leaf blower, and I start blowing these things into, you know, into my neighbor's yard. I really didn't do that. Maybe a little. I blew them into, into piles. You know, it's like I put them in the trash can. I blow them out into the street. Imagine taking that leaf blower and going into my backyard and open that bad, bad boy up on, on the oak tree in the backyard. Putting that thing at full speed and seeing, let's move this oak tree out of the way. It might take off, you know, the slightest little piece of bark. Meanwhile, the chap, the leaves just blowing all over the place. That's the difference. The difference between the two ways to live, the, the one who is following the righteous way, the one who is living a life that's cultivating wisdom is like a tree. He's firm. He's rooted. She is planted deep into the depths of God's word. But the, the other person, the person who is walking along the path of the wicked, the psalm says very clearly is going to be driven away, like Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, at the very slightest wind of cunning or craftiness of the evil one. There's two delights. There's two images. Finally, there's two ends. Look with me in verse 5. Therefore, that's always an important word in the Bible, as a result of what I've said so far about these two ways to live, as a result of what blessedness looks like and what folly looks like, the wicked, the one who follows the path of the counsel of the wicked, will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Very clearly and again poetically put, the end of those who follow the path of wickedness is ultimately coming to stand before God and facing his righteous judgment. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, I think verse 27, 28, that it's destined for every man to die once and face judgment. And the psalm here very clearly lays out for us that those who persist in rejecting God's law, that those who continue to walk in the counsel of the wicked, that those who refuse to place their delight in God's word but rather delight in the things that this world has to offer, sadly, tragically, will face the judgment of a holy God. Sinners cannot stand, he says, in the congregation of the righteous. Very clearly, their end is written for them. C.S. Lewis has put this beautifully. You know, he says in one of his works, I think in Mere Christianity, that ultimately there there are only two types of people. There are those who say, thy will be done, God, and there are those who say, my will be done. It's exactly what the psalmist is getting at here. Those who say ultimately to God, my will be done, get exactly what they want from God. They get their will being done. They get a life empty of God's presence. They get a a life void of God's blessed promises. And that life is a life of hell. But those who, on the contrary, follow and delight in the law of the Lord are, the psalm says there at the very end, known by God. 
Yahweh, the Lord, knows the way of the righteous. That word there, knows, in the Old Testament is a word that connotes intimacy. It's used of husbands and wives very regularly in the Old Testament. It says to us that for those of us who delight in God's law and meditate upon it day and night, we both know God and are known by God. We will experience with him blessed, unending fellowship. Those are very clearly here the two ends of the two ways to live. So we could wrap things up now. We could. You could clock out now and say, good word, Pastor Luke. I'm leaving here with very clear options. You've I hope you'll say you've put it very clearly that there are two ways to live, and you've illustrated it beautifully. There's either the way of wickedness, those who stand with sinners and walk in the counsel of the wicked, or there's the way of the righteous, delighting in God's law and meditating on it day and night. I'm going to delight in God's law this week. I'm going to be righteous. Let's pray. We could clock out right now and end with that. But instead, I want you to be honest. I want you to look at your own heart and think about your own life and ask yourself how well this week you have at every single second delighted in the law of God. I want you to ask yourself how well this week you have at every moment waking and sleeping meditated upon it day and night. How well this week have you done not walking in the counsel of the wicked, not standing in the ways of this world, not sitting in the seat of scoffers. How you doing in your righteousness project? When I examine my heart, the answer is not as well as I would like, and certainly not as well as what this psalm calls me to. And so we're not going to clock out right now, because i got to tell you one more thing. And here's what I want to tell you. This psalm is not fundamentally about you. This psalm is not primarily, and it's a description of your life. You are not the blessed man or woman of Psalm 1. This psalm is about someone else. There is one person in the history of this universe who can truly sing this psalm with utter and absolute integrity. There's one person in the history of the universe who can fully and confidently say before God and others that he has never walked in the counsel of the wicked, he's never stood in the way of sinners, he's never sat with scoffers, he has always delighted fully in the law of the Lord. He meditated on it day and night. He can stand before a righteous God and say, judge me, I'm righteous. And it's not me. And it's not you. That's what you've got to understand. This psalm is only about you as you are connected with Jesus. Jesus is the man that Psalm 1 is about. Jesus is the blessed man. Jesus is the one who delights in God's law. Jesus is the one who meditates on it day and night. Jesus is the righteous one. And Jesus meditated on God's law and delighted in the word and didn't walk with the wicked and stood with the righteous all for you who don't do it. Jesus lived the life described in Psalm 1 because he knows that you and I could never do it on our own.
And so when you read Psalm 1, you must first see Jesus. And if you don't see Jesus and go directly to your life, you're going to read Psalm 1, and for that matter, all the other Psalms, and for that matter, the rest of the Bible, and come away frustrated, discouraged, and despondent. Psalm 1 is a description of Jesus. He is its subject, and he is its singer. And so fundamentally, Psalm 1 is calling you not in and of yourselves to be righteous, but to connect with the only one who truly is righteous by faith. Psalm 1 is calling you to believe that the gospel is true, that Jesus not just died for your sins to be forgiven, but that he lived a righteous life that you could never live. And that in the gospel, your unrighteousness, your lack of delighting in God's word, your sinfulness is transferred to Jesus, and his righteousness, his complete fulfilling someone is transferred to you, and that happens completely free of charge. You don't have to do anything to earn or deserve it. Jesus lived the life that you could never live, and you get the benefits of that. You sin and fall short of the glory of God, and Jesus gets the curse of that. And when you understand that, you are enabled and empowered by faith through the presence of the Holy Spirit to, through Jesus, finally and fully begin to live a life of righteousness. So you don't read the Psalms and directly think first of you. You read the Psalms and directly go to Jesus and then through Jesus to you. Do you see that? You see, without the gospel, Psalm 1 is is a law that will destroy. It's a law that will burden. Oh, the law of God is good. The law of God is holy. The law of God is righteous. The law of God leads to human flourishing. But you cannot fulfill the law of God apart from the work of Jesus. And so the good news is that Jesus has fulfilled this psalm for you. Jesus lived Psalm 1. Jesus is the blessed man. And the gospel tells you to trust in that. And when you trust in that, you get connected to Jesus. So that Jesus, when he appears before, or when you appear before the judgment seat of God, like this psalm says you're going to, God's not going to look at you and see you're falling short of this psalm. He's going to look at you and see the perfect righteousness of Jesus living out this psalm perfectly in every way. And when you believe that, you begin to experience the life of the righteous. When you believe that, you begin to experience the life of wisdom. And so we cannot leave here. We cannot clock out merely thinking, I've got to be more righteous. We must leave here thinking, Jesus is fully righteous for me. And through faith in him, I am able more and more over time through the working of the Holy Spirit to live into the life of God presented in this psalm. You see, Psalm 1 is the gateway to the rest of the Psalter because Psalm 1 so clearly shows us that every single verse of the Bible is fundamentally about Jesus. And his work for you. Count Ludwig Zinzendorf. What a name, by the way. Ludwig von Zinzendorf um, wrote a great hymn. Where is it? A couple of hundred years ago called uh, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. It's a great hymn. And I think that the first stanza summarizes the main idea of Psalm 1, that Delighting in the law of the Lord comes through delighting in the word of God. Uh, following the path of the righteous comes through delighting in the word of God, not just the Bible, but delighting in Jesus for you. And, and here's how the, psalm, or the song reads, first stanza. I'll, I'll just conclude by reading this. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed, 
with joy shall I lift up my head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your righteousness given to us freely in Jesus. Father, we thank you that as we read the first psalm, we see evidently and clearly Jesus' perfect life on display for us. He indeed was the man who, when he was tempted in the wilderness, meditated upon your law day and night. He did not depart from it to the right or to the left. He is the man who spent countless hours with you in prayer, loving you, seeking to delight in your word. He is the man who, because he was eternally a part of your very person from before the foundations of the world, can truly sing this psalm before you. And Father, we know that if we're honest, we don't do these things, and we can never do these things in and of ourselves. And so we thank you that in the gospel you connect us with Jesus who did all of these things for us. And we pray that as we believe that, as that sinks deep into our hearts, we would begin to actually live a life that reflects the way of righteousness. And we know that we are now empowered by the Spirit of God to do that, to follow Jesus in his footsteps, not so that we can earn your favor, but because we have already in Jesus earned your favor. So help us to do that, we ask. Help us weak and needy, sinful people to not follow the counsel and the way of the wicked, but rather to live a life that delights in your word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.